Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. We begin this morning by reading Isaiah chapter 6, the prophecy of Isaiah the 6th chapter. Now, we come from different denominational backgrounds with different liturgical practices, but I'm going to be so bold as to suggest that every time after I have finished reading Scripture, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond collectively, thanks be to God. Isn't that a great tradition? So even those of us who are Baptists and other lesser breeds without the law. I, I speak as a Baptist. I can say things like that. Um, may, may all join in with a, a, a liturgical corporate confession that this is the word of the Lord. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go. And tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. 
Very often it's when we come to an end of ourselves, when we are in mortal danger or face great emotional pain or receive a medical death sentence that we begin to think a little more clearly about eternity's values. We begin to recognize the transience of everything this world affords, the utter lack of security in mere things or in mere politicians. The political issues that exercise us when we're perfectly healthy don't seem quite so important when we've just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Pain, disappointment, fear, danger. They serve either to make us bitter or to make us better. And sometimes first one and then the other. It's not much more than doggerel, but when I was a boy we used to sing, He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. That's what Isaiah experienced. Chapter 6 appears after chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And throughout those chapters, Isaiah is constantly denouncing the typical sins of his age. Chapter 2, verse 8. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and practice and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. Chapter 3. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. All supplies of food and all supplies of water, that's the supplies. The support is the leadership. The hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, clever enchanter, I will make use their officials, children will rule over them. One of the signs of God's judgment on any people is the raising up of silly politicians as opposed to class act statesmen. That's typical in the prophets. I didn't even say something funny. I said something that's transparently there in the text. Chapter 5, with its long series of woes, Verse 8, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. That is, you have so much money, you throw it around and squeeze out all the little people. They don't have any room while you get filthy rich. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, verse 11, to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile. Does that sound a warning to anybody that you know? Verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along, along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Ha, 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 ha. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is, complete and utter moral relativists. Worse, moral inversionists. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, shaken, not stirred. And so on. But at least in Israel there was one bastion of integrity. At least, almost. It was good King Uzziah. He wasn't a bad man. Until in the closing period of his life he turned corrupt and evil. Chronicles tells us the story. And then this man who had at least some bastion of integrity died. And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. It's sometimes when the last stanchion has been removed that we begin to see things more clearly. So, first of all, a holy God, verses 1 to 4. Then a humbled servant, 5 to 7. And then a hard message, verses 8 to the end of the chapter. First then, a holy God. In the temple, verses 1 and 2, apparently, in the vision, the veil has been removed. So, in the vision... Isaiah looks into the most holy place and sees the Lord. That's what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, you are as familiar as I with the fact that often the scriptures remind us that nobody sees the Lord. Nobody can see the Lord and live. There are many texts that say that explicitly. The people at the Mount Sinai, cry, Exodus 20, 19, do not have God speak to us directly or we will die. Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. John 1, 18 says no one has ever seen God. But then we can all remember those passages like ours where someone does see God. What's going on? In every instance, bar none, where we are told that someone sees God, what that person actually sees is just something at the boundary. He says, I saw the Lord, but what does he see? He, he tells us. He's high and exalted. He's seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The word rendered train in most of our English translations is also the word used for, for hem. I suspect that's what is meant here. The, 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 the temple veil is taken away and he sees someone seated on a throne and, and yet the hem of his garment fills the whole temple. How much more do you see? Or think of the prophecy of Ezekiel in the first chapter. There's a wonderful description of the mobile throne chariot. Wheels within wheels and the catapace and all the rest. You could draw a reasonably good picture of what that looks like. And then finally, we, we are told that there's a, 
a throne and someone seated on it. And by the time that description is over, you get a summary in verse 28 of chapter 1. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now go and draw that. It's not until you get to the beatific vision, the final culminating eschatological vision of God at the end, that you finally see God face to face. They shall see his face, we are told. They shall see his face, Revelation 22, 4 and 5. But still, this must have been a spectacular vision. Enhanced by wonderful beings, seraphim, flaming fires, each with six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces so that they cannot gaze on God either. And with two, they cover their lower parts, which indicates modesty. That's what the symbolism is. And with two, they fly, speed to execute the master's commands. And they are calling to one another some sort of antiphonal singing in this massive throne vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We seem to have a lot of contemporary songs that say holy, holy, holy. What does it mean? That's not an easy question to answer. Some people begin by the etymology, the roots of the Hebrew word, and say it means something like separate. God is separate. But were the seraphim calling back and forth to each other, separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. It seems to miss something somewhere. Others connect holiness with morality. Are the seraphim simply crying, moral, moral, moral is the Lord God Almighty. Once again, it seems to miss something. What does it mean? As far as I can see, the holiness word group, it's the same word group as the sanctification word group. It has several concentric circles. That is, it has a tight meaning at the center, and then as you expand out, it has broader meanings, and that's determined by context. At the center, holy is almost an adjective for God. God is God. You can't say more than that. God is holy. Only God is God. In that sense, only God is holy. So, of course, he's separate from all others. But the notion turns on more than the fact that he's separate or different or distinct. It turns on the fact that he is God. He is God so sovereignly in charge that the whole earth is full of his glory. That is, everything that has been made reflects who he is. Glory is regularly tied in scripture to the self-disclosure of God. You find that sort of thing in some of the Psalms. Psalm 29, par excellence. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Do you see the connection between holy and glory? The voice of the water is o- of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. A little farther down, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare, and in his temple all cry, Glory! This is not a manipulatable God. Even the cherubim in Ezekiel or the seraphim here in Isaiah cover their faces with their wings. And cry, holy. This so-called tris hagion, thrice holy, is found only here and in one other passage in scripture. The great vision of Revelation 4 and 5. Holy, holy, holy. At the sound of the voices of the seraphim, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Once again, masking the vision of God. You don't get an unqualified vision of God before the consummation. Even when Jesus says, have I been with you such a long time, Philip, and have you not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, yes, it's it's true. You've, You've seen God incarnate, infleshed. But that enfleshing is also a veiling. As we sing at Christmas, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. For the same scriptures insist that there is nothing in his physical appearance that we should desire him. And even when he stood amongst his disciples, it's not as if he was wearing a white kimono and everybody else was wearing colored ones. He who saw Christ saw the Father, but veiled in flesh until the last day. But here, the veil, so far as it can be, is removed, and Isaiah can testify, I saw the Lord. So here's a holy God. Second, A humbled servant, verses 5 to 7. The first thing Isaiah says is woe. In chapter 5, as we saw, he's been pronouncing his woes on everyone else. God knows they deserve it. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking, at, at, at drinking wine. All the kinds of sins that everybody else commits and he doesn't. And now he sees a vision of God and his first reaction is terror. Woe to me. Don't let that weaken That means I'm damned. (laughs) 
We sometimes pray that God would disclose himself to us in renewed reformation and revival, and it's good that we should. But we must face the fact that if God disclosed himself to us, as so many of us want him to, part of our reaction will be terror. Now, there's more to that reaction. We're, we're, we're coming. There's more in the chapter than that. But God doesn't show up and we all give him a big hug and say, nice to see you again, Grandpa. What we become aware of is our sin as opposed to everybody else's. Now, instead of Isaiah seeing himself as a prophet denouncing the sins of the people, he sees himself as a prophet who participates in the sins of the people. Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. Now the king is not King Uzziah. In some ways, King Uzziah masked the vision of the king. But in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the king. And what has enabled him to see himself so clearly from God's point of view is precisely that he has been given some vision of God himself. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, the altar of sacrifice, the day of the morning and evening sacrifice, the, the, the altar, the, 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 the altar of the morning and evening sacrifice, the altar of the, the day of atonement, the altar where the Passover lamb was slain. And this angel, this seraph, uses tongs to take a coal from the altar and use it to touch Isaiah's lips. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, obviously, a live coal from a burning altar doesn't clean up sin. All it does is scorch your mouth. But the symbolism is pretty transparent. That is what will clean up your admittedly dirty mouth, your filthy speech, your sinful ways, is the sacrifice that God himself has prescribed. And in terms of the old covenant times, those were the sacrifices specified by the law of Moses. So in the vision, this is after all a vision, the seraph takes one of these coals and touches Isaiah's lips. As if to say, Isaiah, preach on. But not because you're intrinsically better than other people. Not because you're a prophet and they're not. But because... You have been cleansed, not by your own efforts, but by a sacrifice that God himself has ordained. Here's the portrait of a humbled servant. And finally, a hard message. For the first time in the narrative, God speaks. And he, be, he speaks by raising a kind of rhetorical question to the council of God, or something of that order, to the set in heaven. 
he, he says uh, suddenly, for the first time speaking, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, what does he say? I fear that sometimes we misunderstand what he said. Some of us think that he said something like this. Here am I, send me. I'm your man, though all others fail you. Not I, I'll go to Uzbekistan or wherever. That simply makes no sense of the flow of the passage. None. He has been crushed by the weight of his own sin. He's just finished damning himself because of his sin. He's received assurance of forgiveness from God because of God's ordained sacrifice. I think that what Isaiah is saying is something like this. Uh, excuse me, I, I'm willing to go. Could you send me, hmm, please? Here am I. Send me. I don't think there's a whiff of arrogance or cocksureness here. There is brokenness. There are some people who want to go to the mission field who, quite frankly, shouldn't go. They're just too sure of themselves. And they never last. And God hears this quiet plea. Can you still use me in ministry? Hmm? He reminds me of Peter's stance. When Peter stands before the cross, he says, though all else forsake you, yet not I. And within hours, he's denying that he knows the Lord with oaths and he becomes a broken man. But later, after the resurrection, Jesus confronts him in John 21 and restores him and says, feed my sheep. Pasture my lambs. Isaiah has had a good and courageous ministry up to now. Make no mistake. A useful and important and necessary ministry. But now he's a broken man. What kind of ministry will he have now? Uh, here am I. Please, could you use me? And now God, for the first time, addresses Isaiah personally. And he says, go. Go and do what? Go. Verse 9. And tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. That's what you tell them. What you're doing is make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That's your job. How would you like that preached at your ordination council? Or when you're being set aside for the work of cross-cultural ministry in some difficult corner of the world. Go! 
Your job is to make the heart of this people calloused. Your job is to preach in such a way that they can't see and they can't hear. That's what the text says. Moreover, it's not the only place where that sort of thing is said. Think of what Jesus says about his own ministry in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus goes so far as to say to his opponents, Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. Do you hear that? That's a causal, because. It's not a concessive. It's not although. Although I tell you the truth, you do not believe. That would be bad enough. But it's a causal. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. That is, it's precisely the truth that guarantees you do not believe. If the truth guarantees that you do not believe, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe, what's your alternative? Tell lies? But if you're faithful to your calling, it's precisely the telling of the truth, which in some circumstances, it doesn't happen all the time, but in some circumstances, is precisely what fires up unbelief. And then Paul reminds us, writing to the Thessalonians, that God says that he so stamps them with hardness of heart that they will believe the lie. Do you not sometimes get the impression here in Northern Ireland that when you articulate the truth, it's precisely the truth that guarantees unbelief? This is not so hard to understand. We see it just about every day in the Western world. And Isaiah understands and responds, therefore, with verse 11. Then I said, for how long, Lord? That is, if you give me this hard task for the next, what, 20 years? 30 years? 40 years? At the end of that time, will you give me revival? Hmm? I'll preach faithfully, and if it means violence and rejection and unpopularity and political danger and maybe getting roughed up a few times and and other things, fine, fine, I'll be faithful to you, but for how long? Before finally you turn to your people in great compassion and mercy and, and bring about repentance and faith and renewal. For how long? And God says, until the city is alive ruined. That is, until the judgment that I've long been pronouncing arrives. Until the exile takes place. Until Jerusalem is finally destroyed. As it was about 140 years after Isaiah preaches these words. Long after Isaiah himself is dead. You preach on until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord himself has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. You preach on this way knowing full well that what's coming is judgment. The judgment of God Almighty. And if that's not enough. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. 
How would you like to have that preached at your ordination council? Or your missionary installation meeting? And the truth of the matter is that some of our missionaries go to places where the gospel is advancing quickly. They see great fruitfulness. And others are sent to Japan. In the last 12 or so years of my teaching at Trinity, I saw more of my students volunteer to go to the Muslim world than I saw in the previous 25 years. They have learned hard languages. They have tried to be absorbed into culturally very different contexts. Some of them are in considerable danger. I know one of these couples is seeing considerable fruitfulness. I won't tell you where. And others see almost nothing. But at last, at the very end of the chapter, there's a little message of hope. The closing lines of verse 13. But as the tenebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. That is, you cut down a mighty oak tree or a tenebinth, and there's still a stump which may have the promise of fruitfulness in it. For quite a number of years, I lived in Vancouver. For those of you who've been there from downtown Vancouver, you can get into Stanley Park, which is a peninsula that reaches out into the Sound. And nowadays, you can get around it by bicycle. Uh, when I was there, you could get into it by car and park immediately on the left and go and visit the aquarium. And there was at the time a small zoo. The aquarium's still there. The zoo's no longer there. But what was always interesting to me was the stump of a giant redwood. The Indians, the native peoples of North America, would cut some of these things down, initially with stone axes, feet and feet in diameter, lop off the branches, roll them down into the sound, and carve out ocean-going canoes. This one had been cut down two and a half centuries earlier, something like that. But out of the middle of it was growing a shoot, a branch. Now, I'm not enough of a biologist to know whether it's because fresh seed was dropped into it and somehow got fertilized and grew up, or if it was a branch coming from the old stump. I, I don't know. But every time I saw that in Stanley Park, I remembered Isaiah 6. The holy seed will be the stump in the land. And then had I time, I could show you that this is structurally related to the opening verse of chapter 11. 
Chapter 11 of Isaiah is one of the great eschatological visions of all of Holy Writ. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the land. Verse 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. That was uttered by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came. In other words, the glory of this prediction, the glory of this prophecy, is teased out across the centuries of redemptive history. It's not an individually shaped, this is how you're going to be blessed in your ministry passage. Do the right things and suffer for a decade or two and finally you'll bring in revival. Isaiah will not see revival. He'll go to his grave, dead as a dodo. In fact, history says, it's not in Holy Scripture, but history says, and in this case, history is probably right, that as an old man in his 80s, he was running from Manasseh and hid in a hollow tree in the forest. Manasseh's soldiers found him, put a rope around the tree, and then cut down the tree. Do you remember how Hebrew says, some were sawn and sunder? Almost certainly referring to the end of Isaiah. How to have a, a glorious missionary experience. But he pointed to Jesus. And even if in the days of his flesh he did not live to see this culmination of things from the stump from the stump that lay in the ground because of God's righteous judgment would emerge the seed, the branch, the shoot of the tribe of Jesse. So we turn a few more pages to the opening chapter of the New Testament and we read the origins of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The king has come. Now let me conclude with three rapid pastoral reflections. Number one, the God-ordained folly of preaching. Paul says something similar. He speaks of the foolishness of the thing preached. 
You, you see, we, we must never ever think that finally we guarantee results by preaching in just such a way or by having the best program, by being the best interpreters of culture. Of course there are things to learn about preaching. There are things to learn about culture. We can always improve in our work, in our art, in our science, in our knowledge, in our understanding, in our relationships. Of course, of course, of course. But at the end of the day, what brings about repentance and faith is not tied irrefutably to our preaching, to our proclamation, to our abilities, to our skills. We try to do the best we can, but our confidence finally is in the Lord who says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this means that there are some people in some places at some times who are called to serve as Isaiah served. At a time when it is the pronunciation, the proclamation of the truth that guarantees hard-heartedness. So some are called to be missionaries in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, in Korea, where there was vast fruitfulness and vast suffering. And others were called in the 50s and 60s to Japan, where there was almost no fruitfulness. Were all those in the first lot godlier than all those in the second lot? I don't think so. So at this great mission conference worldwide, the Lord may call some who are here to parts of the world where there is great fruitfulness. God bless you. Go with courage and a clear conscience and faithfulness. And God may call some of you to a place where there's great danger and little fruit. That was my father's role. He was called in the 1930s from English Canada to French Canada to a population of about six and a half million people where, so far as we know, there were not more than eight or nine evangelical churches of any description. He and a Swissman by the name of William Frey went back into French Canada and began planting seeds again. And for most of his life, until his mid-60s, he preached to vast crowds of not more than 25 or 30. Now his story eventually had a happy ending. Baptist ministers in those days spent time in jail. I remember opening the door when I was just a little gaffer in the early 1950s. I was told that two men were coming to the door and my mother was having a snooze. No wonder she had me to put up with. So she was having her snooze, and I was to let these two gentlemen in. I let them in. They sat down and said, you know where we spent last night? I said, no idea. They said, we were in jail. I thought, what have I done? What have I let in? But in fact, they were two missionaries who were just getting out of a year's sentence, and they came to visit my father as the next step. We kids were sometimes beaten up because we were modi protestants damned Protestants. I don't think it did us any harm. But my father lived long enough that by the time he was in his late 60s and early 70s, he could see fruitfulness that Isaiah longed to see in his own day that Isaiah never saw. 
you must understand that there is no automatic connection between personal giftedness or ability in preaching or spectacular ability in mission organizing and, and fruitfulness because some are called to work at times and places where there is a hard, hard field. Otherwise, you cannot make sense of this passage. But second, not only the God-ordained folly of preaching, but the God-ordained finality of Jesus. At the end of the day, what this passage does is point us to Jesus. Jesus comes, and with him comes not only judgment, but blessing. With Jesus comes the, the culminating sacrifice, the sacrifice to which the sacrifices of this chapter point. With this, with this chapter and the, the, the expectation and the coming of Jesus comes great David's greater son, the seed of Jesse, the one to whom David points so that ultimately we have the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate priest, the ultimate temple, the ultimate king. He comes with Jesus. And from there the gospel go, goes forth, extending way beyond the borders of Israel to men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And still the work is challenging. Sometimes there will be reformation and revival. And sometimes it's the articulation of the truth that guarantees unbelief. But what we see in every case is the God-ordained finality of Jesus. That's how this chapter ends up with its link to chapter 11. And finally, the God-ordained severity and compassion of God the God-ordained severity and compassion of God. We will see this develop more fully in the prophecies of Jeremiah during the week. That is, you find God denouncing the sins of the people and threatening them with judgment and guaranteeing destruction and yet also bleeding his heart out upon them as he promises compassion and restoration and renewal. Already there is the harshness of God's words to the prophet Isaiah as he contemplates his own ministry. You preach until everybody's deaf and dumb and blind. But also the compassion of God. A Savior is coming. A Savior is coming. And his name is Jesus. Let us pray. And so, Lord God, we beg of you. Give us attentive ears as we read your word to pick up its thrust, its flow, its argument. Above all, its disclosure of you, our maker and redeemer. Its disclosure of your son on whom all the hopes of the nations ultimately rest. And call us from this place, whether in home fires, here in Northern Ireland, or around the world that you have made. We do not ask that we might be given places of service that are transparently fruitful. We ask that wherever you send us, you will make us faithful. For Jesus' sake, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.